Carter was born in summer of 2009, and we were adapting to our little family of three. And May 1st, 2011, at about 8 o'clock at night, my husband William asked me to turn all the lights off because he had a headache. He was up all throughout the night, um, just not feeling well. So at about 5 a.m., I went to go take his temperature, and I could feel his body was just burning hot. So we get to the hospital, and they had to run every test to figure out what was wrong with him. So the diagnosis came back as positive for bacterial meningitis, and, and that's when I thought, okay, great. We have a diagnosis. We have somewhere to start. This is good. The ER doctor said, I don't think you understand how sick your husband is. Your husband is dying. His best chance is that he'll be a vegetable for the rest of his life. And I thought, no way, no way. He's a big, strong, healthy man. There's no way he could be dying. He had already been put into a medicated coma. His central nervous system was starting to attack his brain. He was disillusioned and he lost the ability to speak. All he could do was like scream because he was writhing in pain so much. So for the next three days, we waited and we called on our family of believers and our friends and we just asked them to pray. Our worship leader came to the hospital with our pastor and we sang five worship songs to the Lord. It was just a very humble and emptying experience of going, Lord, this is your life, not mine. And I sat there and I rubbed his head and I started reading Psalm 91 over him. And I all of a sudden just started seeing tears come across his face. And I started tearing up and I was telling him, isn't that such beautiful scripture? And he started nodding his head yes. And I thought, oh my goodness, he's coming back. I'm gonna cry a lot more than my wife. So the nurse was going through her questions just to see where I was at mentally, and she asked me what date it was. I had no idea, but I took a guess, and she said, no, it's May, May 5th, 2011, and I just, for some reason, I said, oh, it's Cinco de Mayo. I got to tell him everything that had happened. I got to tell him all the people who were praying for us. We both sat there crying, sobbing in humility. Just to see the community and the church come together in unity like that and, and surround my wife was priceless. You'll never be able to tell somebody how much they loved you when they sat next to you knowing your husband was about to die. When they brought you a meal, when they said, let me hold your baby, there's so much love in that. So since then, I got to be at Trevor's delivery, praise God for that, um, and get to see them every day grow up and just be little, little lights to the world. Um, Carter dresses up in a policeman uniform every day, and he's just a cool little servant that wants nothing to do but please. Trevor is a little more hard-headed, likes to do his own thing and we're okay with that and we absolutely love them both. I'm thankful for my wife who who did stand so firm in her faith. I'm thankful for the thousands of prayers that went up in that short period of time. I'm thankful for the experience. I really am. I wouldn't have changed it for the world. My name is William Simmons. 
And this is my story. Father, we're grateful for stories like that where we uh, get to enter into your movement, your activity. Uh, even, Lord, when you perform miraculous things in the lives of the people in our church. And so, Lord, we're grateful for what you do, for what you say. We pray that as we turn now to your word, that you might be honored and glorified, Lord, as we take a look at a subject that I believe is going to be very relevant to each and every one of us. Would you speak to our minds and hearts, Lord, and may we not escape today the implications of the things we're going to look at for our very lives. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here's one thing that you and I know about life, and that is that life in a fallen world is filled with obstacles. I don't care if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, no matter what your worldview is, one of the things that almost every human being on planet Earth shares in his or her worldview is that life is filled with obstacles. And sometimes the obstacles are small and sometimes the obstacles are huge. So let's start small. If you're a runner and you run on a regular basis, you know that you're going to face the obstacle of what runners call the wall. That, that, that place where you hit when you're running, when you are completely depleted of all types of reserves and you don't feel you can go on anymore at all, you've hit an obstacle. If you're a writer, you know that your obstacle at times is going to be writer's block. If you run your own business, you know that your obstacle is going to be the ups and downs of an economy like our current one. If you're getting older, you know that your obstacle is a failing and ever more complex body as you deal with a lot of the things of aging as we all get older. I mean, think about it. Life is filled with countless obstacles, obstacles in our marriage, our parenting, our jobs, our communities, our relationships, our personal lives. I mean, even my beloved Cleveland Browns have a lot of obstacles. Have you noticed that? Like the biggest one being 31 other NFL teams that always seem to beat them. And in case some of you are wondering, there's only 32 NFL teams, and so that's a lot. At USA Today ran one of their famous polls a few years back, and after surveying 3,000 adults and asking them what tempts them the most in life, the answers were not surprising and very honest. The top five were sex, food, money, alcohol, and power. All obstacles in their own right. One thing that you and I know about living in a fallen world is that it is filled with obstacles, and they are obstacles that need to be overcome if we're ever going to have success in life. And so it should not surprise any of us here this morning that as we continue in our look at what it takes to get a second wind in our walk with God, a second wind when we need it the most, like when we are doubting, hurting, struggling, or just plain placid in our spiritual life, that there are going to be obstacles to you and me getting revived. And as we turn the page into chapter 4 of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, the book that, as we've already established, is all about helping us get a second wind, it is here that God is going to teach us some of the forms that these obstacles are going to take and what you and I can do about them. 
So as I've done every week, let's state the main point of the particular chapter before us, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking what it is all about. So here is the main point of chapter 4 of Nehemiah, and that is that the most formidable obstacles to getting a second wind are other people and internal dragons. It's really true. I know this is going to surprise some of you, and it's a touchy subject, but let me restate that. The most formidable obstacles to you and me getting a second wind are going to be other people and internal dragons. Now, I need you to listen very closely this morning. At 9.30 service, 11.15 in venue, I need you to listen very closely because I want us to be very careful how we parse out what we are declaring here, because it obviously involves other people. And as you're going to hear me suggest in a few minutes here, even other people that might be very close to you, people that you love and that you certainly want to help. Uh, So first, let's look at what's going on in Nehemiah 4 so that we understand rightly what God is saying, and then we're going to notice some of the implications for our lives today. Now, you might remember from earlier weeks that the setting of the book of Nehemiah is rather ominous. Israel is clearly in dire straits. The glory days of Moses, David, and Solomon are now behind them. And due to Israel's unfaithfulness to God and his covenant, he has allowed the Persians to take over Israel, a very vast nation. And they've been in exile for 140 years. That's seven full generations. But things have been slightly better as of late. The Persians allowed some of the Jews to return to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And now Nehemiah, a very good and godly man, has returned to Jerusalem with the king's blessing in order to rebuild the walls and gates around Jerusalem. And as we've noted each week, this is really important, the rebuilding of these walls and gates are going to go a long way in giving God's people their second wind because they're the defenses around Israel. And it symbolizes the restoring of Israel and even the rebuilding of their spiritual lives. As we're going to see later on in this book, God's law is going to be brought back into the believing community as a result of these walls being built up. And so it's really important for their second wind, this rebuilding of the walls and gates. And that's relevant for you and I today when we need to be revived. And so as we ended last week, we saw that chapter 3 describes in a lot of detail the initial rebuilding of these walls. And it's going really well so far. They're about halfway up. But when we get to chapter 4 here, now they encounter some resistance. And folks, when you look closely at what is going on in chapter 4 here, you will see that the resistance takes two distinct forms, that of other people. So the resistance to their second wind is other people as well as their own internal dragons. So look with me again at verses 1 through 3 and notice this first form of resistance. Look up here on the screen. It says, now when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding or building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? 
Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are, they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And so don't miss what's going on here. You got two people who are going to become formidable obstacles to Israel rebuilding the walls and hence getting their second wind. And they are two men that we learned about first in chapter 2, Sanballat and Tobiah. Sanballat, you might remember, is the governor of Samaria, which is just to the north of Jerusalem. Tobiah is the governor of Ammon, which is just to the east of Jerusalem at that time. And they are both obviously not for the restoration of Israel, most likely due to ancient rivalries or Persian national pride, we don't know. But it says that they aren't for this. And then it says, and I know you caught it, that they were angry and greatly enraged. Two very strong ways of putting it in the original Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in. That word angry literally means to become hot, like red in the face. Ever been that way, men? Or, or even women, you, you get so angry that you, you, you get red in the face? And then that phrase, greatly enraged, uh, means that it's been escalating. It's getting even hotter. So, so these guys are really mad. And we understand why. Because they're very frustrated. They want desperately to stop Israel from doing what they're doing, but they can't really do it because the king has blessed this, and they report to the king. And so at best, they can try to intimidate Israel. They can even, as we're going to see in a second, threaten to come after Israel and even plot to do so, but they can't start an all-out civil war because if they do, it's going to go bad for them. So they're going to try psyops first. And so they ask five questions. They're all, all intended to intimidate the Jews. They call them feeble Jews. Which, have you ever had somebody say something to you in kind of a mean-spirited way, but you also know it's true? That, that, that hurts the most, right? Like if somebody says, Jamie, you're short. Well, okay, that's true. What do you mean by that? You know, so that, that type of thing. You see, these Jews really were feeble. As I pointed out last week, they were artisans. They were merchants. They were goldsmiths. They were perfumers. These were not military fighting men. <laughs> they really were not the kind of people that would build a wall. And so they're actually picking on them for something that's kind of true about them, but they were doing it in a very mean way. And in intending to ridicule Israel and intimidate them, it obviously started to work because their jeers and threats started to break the people's spirits. They started to intimidate them. And then in verses 7 to 8 and verses 11 to 12, they go just from jeering to now actually plotting to come against Israel. It says there in verse 11 that they told Israel to expect an attack when they least expect it and that death was going to be the result. And as you can imagine, this freaked out the already fragile Jewish population to the point that in verse 12, this is kind of the, the climax of their fear, it says that some of them said, you must return to us. In other words, stop work and let's retreat. And folks, folks, that's the point, that other people sometimes in this fallen world of ours can be the source of sucking the wind out of our potential second wind. They can be the ones who through their own anger, sinfulness, or just plain ignorance become abs actual obstacles to you and me moving on and finding our sufficiency and even joy in God. 
I'm going to talk to you here in a minute about the choices and the responses that you and I have to people around us. So this isn't a codependent, oh, I'm just a victim thing. But before we even get to that, we need to recognize that what the scriptures are saying, and it's repeated in multiple places in the Bible, is that sometimes other people can actually be the obstacles to the growth that you and I need in God. And let me blow your mind even more. The text here in Nehemiah 4 is actually also suggesting that these could be people that are even sometimes inside the believing religious community. You're saying, where's that? I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but when it mentions Tobiah the Ammonite there, this was most likely, experts assume, the Tobiah of Ezra chapter 2, verses 60 to 63, in which it mentions this same Tobiah, and it tells us that he was a half-breed when it came to Israel. That because of mixed marriages and years and years of that, generations of that, that he was from Ammon, which would not be Israel, but that he was also probably had some Jewish blood in him. And that he actually wanted to become a priest within the believing community there because he was a part of the community of Israel. But it tells us in verse 63 that he couldn't become a priest because he didn't have pure ancestry. And this might be one of the reasons that he is so mad here in, now that we're in Nehemiah. But either way, what this means is that he was most likely a part of the Israelite community. So it wasn't just others from without that were the obstacles. This was others from within that presented the threat to the people's second wind. Uh, folks, this is almost eerily foreshadowing what Paul the Apostle would warn the church of Ephesus about in Acts chapter 20, verse 30. Look up here on the screen. When he said to them, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things and to draw away disciples after them. It's a sobering thought to think that there are others, even others right around us, both inside and outside, the believing community that whether intentionally or even unintentionally become the, become the kind of people that, that prevent us at times from moving on and finding our second wind. And so let's get down to brass tacks, shall we? I mean, as I was thinking about the application of this this week, I thought, you know, most of us don't have a literal governor to the north or a governor to the east that's getting in the way of our second wind. We don't have really like literal sand ballots and Tobias in our life. But if we go with the principles that these are people in and around our lives that prevent us from moving on at times with God and even people that can be inside the believing community inside our very lives, then, then what would this look like today? And I thought of a few scenarios that maybe we need to wrestle with. This could be the person that you are currently dating right now that doesn't either know the Lord or maybe they do, but they're just not quite as serious about their walk with God as you are. And you're hoping that they will eventually get with the program. You're doing your best at what we call missionary dating, trying to change that person. But let's be honest, it's sucking the wind out of your potential second wind when it comes to your walk with God. Just be honest about that. Or maybe this is a longtime friend 
that you have had before you became a Christian or somebody that you felt an affinity with since you become a Christian and you love them and they love you but they don't share the same values that you do because they don't know the Lord and either knowingly or unknowingly they call you to a mindset and a lifestyle when you're with them that doesn't always honor God. I experienced this when I first became a Christian. All my friends uh, from high school were guys that didn't know the Lord. And even though I shared Christ, Christ with them, very few of them saw, said to me initially, gosh, I never thought about it that way. How can I become a Christian? That wasn't their response. That they, can, they continued on uh, in, in, in their rebellion against God. And, and I can remember in early college when I'd come home to my little town in Cleveland, Ohio, and I tried to reconnect with my friends, they literally would look at me and say, man, you're just no fun anymore. Like, you used to be really fun. You used to have a, a good time with us, which obviously meant drinking a lot and things like that. And, and they'd just say, you know what, you've changed. And their implicit pressure was for me to become more like them, not them like me. And it started to bring me down at times. Or most sobering, this could even be a, a fellow church member, somebody in your Bible study, your small group, your service environment who... Who, who likes to come to church, but have you ever noticed they always seem to be super negative about everything going on in their church? They have what I call the spiritual gift of discouragement. They do. And, and, and though you tolerate them and maybe even show them grace as you should, and you might even enjoy their wit and sarcasm at times, let's be honest, you are never spiritually uplifted by them. In fact, there's even times when you admit they're holding you back. I mean, think about all the different scenarios where you and I might have people around us. And again, we're not going to talk about shunning them or anything like that in a minute here, but let's just be honest. People around us that aren't helping our spiritual growth, and we need to know what to do with that, how to respond to them. And let me even blow you away even more. I read this list to my wife yesterday, Kim, when she came home from shopping, and and uh, I, I read her this list, and I said, you know, what do you, what do you think of this list? And she said, you need to add one other person to this list. I said, who? She said, you need to ask them whether they would include themselves on this list. I said, really? She said, yeah. You need to ask them, are they the type of people, if we're being honest, that are the hindrances to others' spiritual growth? You see why I love this woman? And then she said to me in a very tender way, and she said, and I hope, Jamie, that I am never the type of person in your life that holds you back in your walk with God. I said to her, Kim, you need to know two things. One, I do have a list. And two, you're not on it. I said, not even close. I, I said, you're just amazing to me, and all you've ever done is propel me forward in my walk with God, even at times that I don't like it at times. And, and, and you see, it's at this point where I think it's helpful to make a very important distinction between two types of people. Now, now don't miss this, because some of you are squirming already about this. I, I'm not suggesting that everybody who holds you back spiritually is a sandballot or a Tobiah. I, I, I'm not here to vilify anybody. And so for years, I've actually made a distinction between two types of people that hold me back in my spiritual life. Look up here on the screen. This might be helpful for you. Look up here on the screen. There you go. And, and that is good-hearted but wrongly focused people. And, and then there's not so good-hearted but wrongly focused people. Do you understand the difference? You, you see, Sanballat and Tobiah obviously were in category number two. 
Th these were Doeg the Edomites. This was Alexander the metal worker. This was Demas. These are all people in the Bible that really became kind of enemies of spiritual people. And, and, and though one of these guys did exist inside the believing community, they, they did not have good hearts. And you're going to hear Nehemiah's prayer in just a minute here about what he prays for them, and it's rather brutal. But I would suggest to you that there's other people that hold us back spiritually, and they are good-hearted but wrongly focused people. What Marshall Shelley from Christianity Today magazine calls well-intentioned dragons. These are people who really do pull us down, and yet they do have good hearts. We're not to give up on them or anything silly like that. It's just that we need to recognize that there are people like this in our life, that they become obstacles to our second win, and we need to respond in a godly way that helps them and protects us and allows us to move on. Nehemiah faced people in his life that became obstacles to their second wind. And you and I, I would submit, have the same thing going around, on around us today. Now, hang on to that, and before we move on to talk about what we do when we confront these human obstacles in our lives, let me very briefly, but importantly, comment on a second type of obstacle that you and I have to, our, to getting our second win, and that is our own internal dragons, our own internal dragons. Look at verse 10 uh, of Nehemiah 4, and notice what was going on in the people's hearts and minds, and I'm going to suggest to you that just, wasn't just about... Sanballat and Tobiah. It says in verse 10, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. So as we noted earlier, the psyops was working. The people were getting discouraged. They were uh, allowing the intimidation to get to them. But let's own what's really going on here. They were allowing these human obstacles to push buttons inside them, buttons like fear, worry, hopelessness, discouragement, insecurity. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that they were, is that they were their own buttons getting pushed and that they were allowing these human obstacles to push them. You see, we know from reading other scriptures like Matthew chapter 6 and Philippians chapter 4 that worry, insecurity, fear, even anger live inside our fallen human souls. Amen? Let's try that again. They live inside our fallen human souls. Amen? Amen. They do. Own that today. You don't need help from other people to worry. You don't need help from other people to fear. You got it in you to do that in your fallen, fragile nature. And so though we blame other people at times for that, and though they might be involved in that, one of the things we need to own is that those are our own internal dragons. That, that whether they help bring it out or not, it probably was in there in the first place. And so we need to own our own buttons that get pushed by others as our buttons, and we're responsible for those just as much as we're responsible to our response to the human obstacles around us. So you got misguided others, you got internal dragons, and then the question becomes, what do we do with all of this? What should our response be to these obstacles that threaten our second wind? Three things I want to leave you with here this morning. 
11.15 venue, three things that Nehemiah 4 tells us. Three things you and I can do in response to the obstacles that worked for Nehemiah and they'll work for us. And the first thing is to hit our knees and apply prayer. I'm telling you, this is going to be a reoccurring theme all throughout this book is to pray. Because the first thing that we see Nehemiah doing, isn't it interesting, is pray. After originally being confronted and intimidated by Sanballat and Tobiah, don't miss the very first thing he does is he takes it to God. So verses 1 through 3 is about the intimidation. And then in verses 4 and 5, without even saying, I'm about to pray, he just goes into the first person and he says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered at a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And then interestingly, he does the same thing in verse 9. As things begin to heat up even more and they now plot their tactics against Israel, it says once again that Nehemiah resorted to prayer. You might remember that I pointed out in week one of our series here that we're going to find Nehemiah in 13 different chapters praying on 12 different occasions. That's a lot of prayer. And sure enough, we're now in chapter four, and this is the fourth instance, the third or fourth instance, where we're going to see Nehemiah praying as a first response to trouble coming his way. And obviously the reason that Nehemiah would begin first and foremost with prayer is simple. That though it was others that was threatening his second wind, it was God who was going to help him and God who was going to give him his second wind. Amen? I mean, it just makes sense. You and I get it backwards. Others threaten us, so we fight back. We come at them or we retreat. We do all these unhealthy things that basically focus on them. Nehemiah said, they aren't really the problem. Uh, the, the, the issue is I got to get God to help with this problem, but God is going to be the one to give me my second win. He knew that only God could change others. Only God could protect his people. Only God could give them a second wind. And, and I need to, to point out too that though verses four and five might seem kind of harsh and brutal, when you look closely at that prayer, it doesn't read like a lot of New Testament prayers that are more kind of grace-filled. But most Bible experts point out that when you look close at this prayer, it's not so much a prayer that's saying, send them to hell in a handbasket, as much as it is a prayer, now don't miss this, of present tense justice and protection. When you look close, that's really what he's praying for here. He says in the beginning of the prayer there, God, give them a taste of their own medicine. Allow them to know what it's like to be threatened. Allow them to be plundered as they're going to try to plunder us. And then he asked God, interestingly, now you've got to look close, to not cover their guilt, to not let their sin be blotted from God's present tense sight. And these are not prayers that God would not forgive them or save them. They are prayers that God would not turn a blind eye to their actions and let them off the hook that God would provide justice and protection for the nation Israel. And, and, and so obviously here, he's not saying that I hope these guys burn in hell. He's saying, God, I hope you bring justice in this situation and protection. And I think there's something in that for you and I. 
That, that, that when we are praying for the people around us, whether they're the good-hearted people who are wrongly focused or even the not-so-good-hearted, what we're praying for is justice. We're praying that God would reveal and uncover their wrong-minded and even manipulative ways, that God would bring that to light, that God would bring justice to the current situation because he's a God of truth and justice, and God, would you protect me in this situation as well? That's what we pray for. That's what we learn here from verses 4 and 5. You see, you and I must have as our very, very first response heartfelt and regular prayer. It's just that we already established early on in the series, and just own this with me today, church, that this doesn't come natural to us. We're really good Americans. We tend to take matters into our own hands right away and say, I'm going to fix this. It's just if you drag that mindset into your walk with God and into your relationship with him, all of a sudden he's going to smack a label on you of self-sufficiency, and that's a sin, (laughs) and say, you don't get it. You don't get it. You're supposed to be depending on me. You can't do this on your own. You might be able to do your job on your own. You might be able to raise some of your kids, all these things. You can't. You can't do this one on your own. You can't get a second wind by yourself. Only I can give you that. Only I can protect you in these situations. So we begin with prayer. And then and only then do we notice a second weapon that Nehemiah and the Israelites used to overcome uh, their obstacles, whether, again, they're human obstacles or internal ones. And this one's going to surprise some of you. It's passion. It was passion. Now, this is an interesting one, but very potent. I want to show you this. Look what's going on. In the midst of all of this drama in chapter 4, and you'll see a lot of passion, right after the prayer of verses 4 and 5, it says very simply and clearly in verse 6, look up here on the screen, it says, so we built the wall for the people had a mind to work. So they prayed in verses 1 through 3. I'm sorry, they they, they had the obstacle in verses 1 through 3. They prayed in verses 4 through 5. Then immediately in verse 6, we hear and sense a resolve, a conviction, a passion burning in Israel. So we built the wall for the people had a mind to work. That word mind in the original Hebrew appears 591 times in the Old Testament. It's a very common word. And get this, it literally means the internal self. They actually translated it mind here, but other translations will translate it heart because it can mean mind, heart, or will. It's really the whole internal self. In a sense, what it's saying is that something was stirring in Israel. Something was brewing inside their souls from their internal self that said, we're going to build this wall. We're going to get a second wind. And then if you're not convinced, look at verse 14. As the effects of prayer and trust in God are beginning to take hold, Nehemiah says in verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So I love how one expert Bible commentator says it. This is good. He says, this call of Nehemiah is a masterstroke. He got his people involved emotionally. I'm not reading anything to that. He says emotionally. It's passion. And then in verses 20 to 21, Nehemiah is again speaking in the first person. And he says, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, 
rallied to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. Folks, i got to ask you, what is a trumpet call in that situation except for a call to passion? You see, what was going on inside Israel all through chapter 4 here is that as they prayed, as they trusted in God, as they found their sufficiency and strength in Him through His Spirit, He gave them a deep sense of passion. And they dug deep and they found this passion inside of them and this passion affected their wills. And it caused them to build and it was going to be the foundation in many ways for their second wind. It's unmistakable when you look at this chapter that that human and internal obstacles loom, but prayer and faith in God leads to passion. And passion is going to begin to turn the tide. And you see, when you get that, you've now understood something very, very key about life. Now, don't miss this. And that is that life, when you boil it down, is all about competing passions. It really is. You look close at any battle you have in life, and it's really going to come down to competing passions. As we've already noted, life is filled with obstacles. You can't get away from them in a fallen world. And think about it. Obstacles are usually overcome when one passion overrides another. So if you're trying to lose weight and uh, you really want to lose weight, the only way it's really going to happen is if your passion to feel better and look better overrides in the moment your passion to eat an entire box of Cheez-Its during the Super Bowl. <laughs> I'm serious. I, 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 I mean, I said to somebody last night, three or four times yesterday afternoon, I was planning my meal for after worship service last night, and I knew my big battle was whether I was going to include waffle fries or not at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and in that moment, in that moment, it was going to all be about competing passions. Which passion was going to win? If you're an alcoholic, if you struggle with alcohol, you know that it's about competing passions. Either your passion for sobriety and a life that is blessed, or your passion to find solace in the bottle. I know it's more complex than that and other things going on, but at the end of the day, it's about a competing passion. We work with a lot of failed marriages here. I'm telling you, what I see in most failed marriages is a choice between one spouse having a passion to be loving and committed to another person's need versus a passion for their own selfish needs and desires. I I work with a lot of men on that level. You're either going to demand that your own needs get met or you're going to love your wife as Jesus loved the church. It's all about competing passions. Which one is going to win inside of you? And so when it comes to your second win with God, listen, people. And the obstacles that you face, once again, I'm telling you, it's all going to come down to a competing passion. Either your passion for God is going to override your fear-based codependent passion (laughs) to to, to cave in to those around you and even your own internal dragons, or it's not. I mean, really, at the end of the day, the question becomes, and it's really Matthew 22 applied, Are you going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength or not? Because he says if you love him with everything in you, if he becomes the first thing in your life, if your affection for him is stronger than your affection for everything else around you, now listen, you will win and you will get a second wind because it's all about competing passions. 
You know, I, I experience this every day. I, I, I know as many of you see me as a pastor, see me as a guy who, who obviously um, might have it easy on a spiritual level or somehow is immune to, to, to spiritual struggles. But as I've said to you a thousand times, I'm really not. I, I mean, I, I struggle with all the same things you guys do, doubt, fear, insecurity, all the things that tend to well up in my soul. And so one of the reasons that I established over 30 years ago when I became a Christian that I need to spend regular time in the Word, regular time in prayer, regular time with healthy others, other believers who, who really can love me and journey with me. But one of the reasons I need to build a strong marriage, one of the reasons that I need to give generously, one of the reasons I need to serve, all the disciplines that we talk about around here, the only reason I do those things is because I want my love for God to be stronger than everything else around me. And here's the deal. I know that if I give up doing those things, if I just start to coast, and believe me, I've done it. If I just coast and say, well, I'll just come to church and I'll preach Andy Stanley's sermons and do things like this and, you know, just, just, I've never done that by the way. But if I, but if I do just coast, I, I know that it won't be very long at all that the, as Jesus said, that the things of this world like weeds will start to choke out my faith. What's that about? competing passions. And, and, and so you and I, as we're looking to get a second wind, need to realize very much so that when it comes to others around us, we are not victims. You can dig deep within, find that Holy Spirit that lives in you because of your salvation in Christ. Build up, bolster that part of your life through the word and prayer and being with healthy others and, 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 and giving generously and serving and evangelizing, all the things that we talk about here. And as you build up the strength of your own soul, you watch that competing passion will be enough for the obstacles that are around you. Nehemiah dug deep and he found his richest passion in God and we can do the same. And though we're fast out of time because Pat is going to take us to the communion table here in just a minute and then the venue is going to have their own communion, uh, let me very quickly note a third and final thing that Nehemiah marshaled to overcome the obstacles around him. And this will be for another sermon, but we'll do this soon enough. And that is protection. So you got prayer, passion, and protection. Look at verse 9. Nehemiah says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So I love how commentators point this out. They didn't just pray. They didn't just have passion. They also acted and set boundaries. And you can read about all the boundaries and protection that they set in verses 13 through 23 there that we read earlier. And that really, it makes sense that when you think about it, that it's wise in life, in addition to prayer, in addition to passion, and your walk with God, to set up boundaries of protection around you. Protection that makes it so that the human obstacles around you don't get so close that they rob you of your second wind. That just makes sense. And again, though it's for another sermon, we spend a lot of time, I see one of our counselors is here today, we spend a lot of time in, in, in counseling here at our church, helping people learn how to set up healthy relational and spiritual boundaries that are all about protection. Boundaries of what you will let people say to you and what you won't. Boundaries of when to walk away. Boundaries of how often you're going to be with certain people, when, where, and how. You guys get it. I mean, life is about wisdom and smart, and it's not unloving to say to people that can be toxic to your spiritual life, I will love you, I will pray for you, but I'm also going to protect my own soul in how and in what ways I spend time with you. Give me a head nod that that just makes sense. 
And I think many of us need to have more boundaries and more protection at times in what ways we will allow people into our lives. Again, it's for another sermon, but chew on that one because you see it all throughout the scriptures. I got to tell you, this was a hard message for me to give here today. It really was. And the reason it was hard for me to give is because I so much love people. I really do. I know some of you don't think so at times because you come at me and say hard things and I come back at you. It's because I love you. And I committed years ago. No, I really did. I committed years ago. It is not healthy for people to come and treat their pastor inappropriately and for their pastor to say, give me more. That's not healthy. No, it's more healthy that I call you at times on your attitude, that I call you on the way that you treat other people, even me. So I'm not going to let people get away with that. I really won't. And I believe that's healthy. But it's because I really do love you. And I love people in general. I don't mind saying that. I love God and I love people. So it's hard for me to talk about other people being human obstacles. It really is. I, I, I wrestled with this message this week. But at the end of the day, it's true. There are times when people in our lives can be the same ones that prevent us from getting a second win. So what do we do? We pray. We pray for them. We pray for us. We unleash passion. So that the passion inside of us is stronger than their passion to hold us down. And competing passions, we win. And then we protect. We set boundaries. And as we do that, we are well on our way to getting a second wind. We're going to go to the communion table here in just a minute. Before we do, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, your word is not just filled with life-giving truth, but truth that really is livable, that's applicable today in our very lives. So God, as we've taken a look at Nehemiah 4 and this idea that there are obstacles to our second wind and that these obstacles can take human form and they certainly live in us, that Father, as we apply prayer, as we dig deep for the passion that your spirit has put in us for Christ and his kingdom, and Lord, as we set boundaries around us that protect us and even love others, God, I pray that as we apply these things that God, you would allow each of us here today to have healthy relationships with those around us and certainly with you. And that, Lord, in that, that you might enter in, move and breathe in and through our lives and revive us, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together.